if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we are going to be finishing up chapter 2 after many weeks tonight. We are making our way slowly through the book of Acts, uh, verse by verse, and uh, we're going to talk about kind of a, an, an interesting thing tonight. So I, I have, uh, I was going through my uh, computer the other day, noticing I have uh, tens of thousands of pictures that I've taken over the years, and that's kind of what happens when, uh, when you have either kids or kids cats, I'm told. You just take a lot of pictures. And so I was thinking this week because um, my family, so most of our pictures are um, kind of when we first had kids, it's when we were moving from analog to digital, right? For some of you who are old enough, you remember, remember you'd have a camera and you'd buy film. Do you remember that? And you'd put the film in there and then you'd, you know, Right, and then you'd take pictures and you'd hope that they weren't double exposed and then you'd um, take it and you'd pay a whole lot of money to have somebody develop them only to find out like half of them are uh, uh, shots of your foot or something, right? And then, and, and then we got digital cameras and you could just take thousands and thousands of pictures and they didn't cost you anything. They just filled up your hard drive and messed everything up. But so I have a lot of those pictures and I, there's a few pictures that I have of my family. And I, you know, fam, I have pictures from, you know, a week and a half ago when we were in Arizona and other stuff. But there's a few pictures for me that are iconic, not because they're amazing pictures, but they just mean a lot to me. And you may have some of those as a family. So this, this is one for me, and I always remember this. This is from 2004. So it's a little while ago, and uh, this is my family, and we're in the family truckster, and we are ready to go to California. We are all loaded up. And so, you know, when you see a picture like that, you're like, oh, there's everybody. It's a beautiful day, and everyone's happy and ready to go. And, but if you've had kids and you've taken a drive all the way to Disneyland, right, you know that there's more going on uh, than you can see in this picture. What you don't see is all the planning and, 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 you know, and you know what I was thinking of that I completely forgot about? Any of you remember MapQuest? Oh man, right? What a mess. Do you remember how you go on the internet? This is before you had, you know, uh, Google Maps and you'd go on the internet and you'd look up a route and then you'd print it off and it'd be like 55 pages on a dot matrix printer, right? And you'd like figure out how to get where you're going and get lost. So I'm thinking about all the maps and the packing, right? If you've gone on trips like just the long, long drives, the, uh, the kids getting hangry and melting down, not, not me, but the kids and being at Disneyland and waiting long lines and all that stuff. Now that's not what I see when I see the picture. I just see my family. I'm ready to go to, to California. We're gonna have a great time. And, uh, but we all know there's a lot of stuff behind it. These are, it's kind of like Christmas pictures. You see somebody, a family's Christmas picture, everyone's smiling and doing great, right? But you know, somebody melted down right after the picture and all that kind of stuff. It just, that's the way it goes. We're at the end of Acts chapter 2, and we get what I call kind of the first family picture. Of the, of the newly born church. And it looks pretty good. It's a little bit like, you know, that picture before you leave on vacation. It's a little bit like a Christmas card. Let me just read it for you in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a description of the first church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they all had everything in common. And, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. Now, beautiful picture. Everyone's getting along. Of course, if you read ahead, it reveals the church isn't perfect. Uh, we'll uh, be introduced to Ananias and Sapphira in a little bit. We'll be introduced to some opposition and fighting that was going on within the church. We'll look at some disagreements that people had. We'll see that there was tension between ethnic groups. We'll meet people like Simon the magician, and we'll see how even spiritual people like Paul and Barnabas will clash at times. But this picture that we just read, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a 40,000-foot view as you're flying. Uh, my wife and I were in Phoenix a few weeks ago. We were flying back into town, and we got to fly over Camas Washougal. And I was just thinking, looking out the window and looking down, right? You're like, everything looks so good from, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 feet. All the roads look great. You don't see anybody tailgating anyone else. The, the neighborhoods are just idyllic and laid out. And there's trees. And, you know, you can see the river. And I could see the dike that I run along. And it, it all looks so great. But then you land. And you get in your car, and you come up the 14, and you go through the roundabouts with all the crazy drivers, right? And there's potholes, and you go running on the dike, and there's dog poop everywhere that you didn't see at 40,000 feet. There's crazy Californians who've come in and taken over, like me. And, and there's cats just roaming the neighborhoods, like they own the place, you know? And those are things you don't see at 40,000 feet. Uh, but what we have is this picture again. It, it, notice it says, and they continually devoted themselves... Four things are mentioned here. To the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So the word here, it, the word devoted, is a, it, it's a, it's a powerful word. There's a lot going on here. It means to, to be earnest, to be passionate uh, towards something. It means to be constantly diligent, uh, to persevere. I don't usually quote uh, Greek dictionaries, but I did find a good description of this Greek word. It, it goes like this. It's the idea of being so consumed with something beautiful that you occupy yourself diligently to it. Right? You can probably think of something at some point in your life that you considered so beautiful, right? so breathtaking that you just couldn't stop thinking about it. It's paying persistent attention with, with diligence. But the diligence seems almost effortless because of the beauty of the thing. Uh, put another way, desire and diligence come together to create devotion. These people were devoted. Here's another way of thinking about it. Uh, discipline says I need to, right? So we, we all have areas in our life where we have discipline. And we do it because we know that we need to do it. I, I need to exercise. I need to eat right, whatever that is. Duty says I ought to. So sometimes they're just, this is the you know, duties thing I need to do. But devotion says I want to. And you can see how that's, how that's different. Another definition of devoted is discipline fueled by gratitude. I love that. I got to think about that all week. It's discipline fueled by gratitude. If you just have gratitude, right, your life can kind of be a, a, a disorganized mess. If you just have discipline, it's really hard. But discipline fueled by gratitude, that's, that's what these people had in this, this first church. And what we notice, there's, there's four commitments, there's four things that we can be devoted to that we pull out of this text. And I want to look at those this evening. The first one is this. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We can broaden it a little bit and say to be devoted to biblical teaching. Verse 42, again. And they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
So I love the fact that the first thing that happens in the very first church service, if you will, after the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born, is someone gets up and preaches a sermon. I love that, right? Because the church is to be a place where the Word of God is proclaimed and it is explained. And people have asked, why would, why would teaching be mentioned first in this text? Why not, why not love? Why not generosity or fellowship? And the answer would be because it's the thing that defines and guides all the others. It's the Bible that teaches us what love is. Right? You've, you've noticed there's a lot of people who have a lot of different definitions of love and what love is. So how do we know what love really is? Well, the Bible teaches us that. The Bible teaches us how to pray, how to worship, how to live, make decisions, how to encourage one another and, and serve one another. But another question here is, what, what did the apostles teach? What were they teaching? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Were they, were they you know, preaching Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No. Those books hadn't been written yet. Uh, were, you know, maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that would be good, but that hasn't been written yet. The epistles haven't been written yet. The book of Acts hasn't been written yet. So what are they teaching? Well, they're teaching the Old Testament. They're teaching uh, the prophets. They're teaching uh, the sayings of Jesus. Remember, for three years, these, these men followed Jesus around. And so, they're, you know, they're, oh, Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount, and they would teach that. Or, or Jesus said this in the upper room, and, and they would teach about that. Maybe teach about some of the miracles he worked and the things he learned and some of the parables. Now, I mention all this because there is kind of a movement. It's, uh, it's been around for a little while, but it's people who call themselves red-letter Christians. You ever hear that? And so these are people who like, so I, have a, I have a Bible, and in my Bible, and maybe it's that way in yours, the, letter, or the words of Jesus are in red. And so sometimes I'll meet people, even sometimes people here. I had somebody a few months ago after a sermon say, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really get into what you're talking about because Paul said that and I don't really, I don't read Paul. I said, well, who do you read? Well, I read, I read Jesus. I'm a red letter Christian. I just read the things that Jesus said, which is kind of interesting, except for the fact that Jesus wasn't a red letter Christian, right? What did Jesus teach? He taught from the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, what he said was the entire Old Testament was about him. Genesis was about him. The prophets were about him. Exodus was about him. So the apostles, they followed Jesus' teaching example. They're teaching from the Old Testament. They're, they're teaching things that Jesus taught. And this teaching was a daily thing. As you read through the passage, you'll see it says they were doing this day by day. So these are, these are brand new Christians in the very first church. And these are people who are hungry for the word of God. I was thinking how challenging that would have been for these, there's just 12 guys and 3,000 Christians and they all want to be taught the things of God. And there's, there are no commentaries, you know. They, they couldn't go online and look up some sermons that, that people have done. They've just got to come up with this stuff and they're coming up with it every day. I don't know if you've ever been that hungry for the word of God, but I meet people sometimes who are like that. In fact, usually when I meet them, it's, it's not even in this country. Uh, so I go uh, every year down to Nicaragua, and when I go down there, I get to spend some time teaching uh, people who are down there, pastors and, and church leaders, and seem, these are some of the groups that I got to meet. But here's what I always find interesting when you start to talk to them, and you know, I'll ask, well, you know, where do you live? And, and I'll find out that for them to get where we were, because usually uh, I'll do teaching out in the middle of nowhere. And people say, oh, well, I, you know, I came from the Caribbean side of the country. Well, how'd you get here? Well, I, I had to travel three uh, days on a chicken bus. 
they call it a chicken bus because, you know, there are chickens on the bus. It's like that simple. And they rode on this bus for three days to get there. There are people who would walk for an entire day on a country road to get there. And then they get there and they sit in a hard plastic chair. They don't have any cushions like you do. And, and usually in the morning I'll ask, you know, so how long do you guys want to go today? You want to go two, three, four hours? And they'll always basically be, we can sit here as long as you can talk. They don't know me very well. So sometimes we'll go eight, nine hours can you imagine that? And teaching, and then when we're done, they'll want to ask questions for a while because they are so hungry for the word of God. And I, I think sometimes we look at people in the early church and we think, well, they could do this every day because, you know, they didn't have lives. They, they didn't have anything else to do. But folks, they, right, they had jobs. In fact, they didn't, you know, they didn't have 40-hour-a-week jobs. They didn't have weekends back then. A lot of times they worked at least six and sometimes seven days a week from sunup till sundown. Uh, these are people who had families and, and finances to take care of. They had chores and maybe hobbies. You know, maybe they were like you. Maybe they're into politics or music or sports or entertainment. But, but they put the Word of God at the top of their daily list so that they would absolutely have time for it. One of the things that I, I, I like to say is that there are certain things in life for which we must pre-decide. Pre-decide is a word I love because it really describes in so many ways what it means to have discipline spiritually. We must pre-decide to spend time in the Word of God. We must pre-decide to make church a priority. In other words, we have to, we have to do it. We have to put it on our schedule. We have to do it first. So, um, this is a practice I have every day at the end of the day. Uh, I'm, I'm very much into pre-deciding. Um, and so before I go to bed at night, I'll sit down and think to myself, I did this last night, well, what am I going to wear tomorrow? So I'll think about it. Right? You're probably thinking, you put thought into that? But I, I'll think about it, right? And, I'll, and, a fig, and then I'll put everything out. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll lay out my entire day. Now I know things could change and, and, and uh, you know, my schedule might get me- messed up. But my whole goal is just to put my, my day together so that all the most important things have been scheduled. I don't leave it a chance. I, I, never, I never think to myself, well, I'll wake up in the morning and see how I feel. Maybe I'll feel like going to church. Maybe I'll feel like reading the Bible. Yeah. Maybe I'll feel like getting together with other Christians. I don't leave that to chance. And, and here's what I've seen. I've seen that when people start pre-deciding stuff like this, it can be profound. So one of, the, one of the joys in my job is every now and then, and it's happened a bunch of times this weekend, um, somebody might come up after sermon and say, you know, Pastor, I, I, am, I made the decision. I'm going to read the Bible, the entire Bible this year. Or, or I'm going to read the Bible every day for the next 30 days. And here's what usually ends up happening. So the, the Holy Spirit just puts that spark in them, and so they decide they're going to do it. And because they haven't been doing it, they realize they're going to have to have a little discipline, so they'll put it on their schedule or tell someone, you know, can you text me and make sure that I read that day? And uh, so they'll begin to read. And then usually I'll see them a few weeks later and they'll say, you know, 
I have to tell you, I've been reading my Bible every day, and I'm, I've noticed all this stuff. I never noticed before, like I've read this, but I never really noticed this. And it's making it, it's, it's changing the way I, I experience my day and the way I experience challenges in life. And then a lot of times with, with people, they'll come back and say, you know, I was, I was reading 15 minutes a day, and, and it's been so good, now I'm reading 30 minutes a day. And, and I was going to do it for a month, but now I'm going to do it for a year, and it becomes this, this practice. And, and in all of this, here's what I've noticed. Here's how it doesn't happen. Well, I'll just see how I feel tomorrow. The way that we change a bad habit is we, have, we decide. We, we plan. I believe that's what these people had to do because church had never been done before. This is the first church. There's no handbook on how to do it. So they are dedicating themselves. They're devoted to doing this. And when we think about teaching, one other thing I want to mention is, and, and I hear this every now and then, and I, I read this every now and then, where people say, you know, the problem with the church today is that there's just too much teaching in the church. And here's the thing I'll hear from people. You know, there's just teaching in the church, and people just sit and soak and sour. Like, that's cute. They sit, and they soak, and they sour in all that teaching. And the reality is, there's no such thing as too much Bible teaching. Now, sometimes there's not enough doing. But the two are not mutually exclusive. It's not a zero-sum game here. You can do both of these. And in fact, that's what we see in this very first church. They were getting Bible teaching daily, and they were living out their faith daily. Here at Gateway, we want to do this. We want to be devoted to the Word of God. It's it's why we built this building with, with more seats. So there's more room for people to come in and get teaching. It's why we have multiple services. And, you know, it's why we have Bible studies for all ages and sermons online. And it's why we, we encourage you to invite other people. We want to be people who are devoted to the Word of God. That was the first thing for them. Here's the second thing. It says that they were devoted to the fellowship. And we'll notice here, it doesn't say they were devoted to fellowship. It says they were devoted to the fellowship. And here's what that means in verse 42. And they continually devoted themselves to the fellowship. So if you've been a Christian and coming to church for a while, you probably know what that word fellowship is in the Greek, right? What is it? Koinonia, right? You know that? Koinonia, it means to participate or to share uh, or, or to have a commonness. And this is the first occurrence of that word in the New Testament. And notice what it says. It says they were, com- they were devoted to the fellowship, not fellowship. Sometimes we think we're being devoted to fellowship. Because we think of fellowship as a meeting, or fellowship as a, as a potluck, or, or fellowship as a, as a gathering. This is not a commitment to fellowship. It's a commitment to the fellowship. The fellowship is not a meeting. The fellowship is not a, it, it's a group of people. In other words, they were devoted to each other. In verse 44, it tells us this. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so it says they had everything in common. And it's kind of an interesting situation that's going on here. We talked about this a few weeks ago. So uh, we have Pentecost, this this holy day, this festival uh, that the Jews had. And it was a pilgrimage. So tens of thousands of Jews had come from all over the empire. And they, they gathered in Jerusalem. And they're there, and on the day of Pentecost that they're there to celebrate, the Holy Spirit comes down. 3,000 of them get saved. And what historians tell us is that many of them, right, they decided to stay in Jerusalem for a while. 
Because the church had just been born and they wanted to find out more about this Jesus that they had just committed their lives to. And so as time went on, you know, the, the, their, they couldn't afford to stay at the Best Western anymore or their Airbnb room was, was up. And so they began to move in with other Christians who lived in Jerusalem. And these people who lived in Jerusalem, they started having uh, believers come and live with them and they would stay for a while and they would feed them and, and, and give them lodging. Now, it's important for us to understand this is not, what's happening here is not communism. They're not being forced to sell their possessions. It's not communalism. They didn't sell everything and, you know, live in a big uh, compound together. They still owned homes. And, and, but what it meant was they sold assets and extra property, as we'll see in a few weeks. They sold some possessions that they could liquidate in investments. And they used that money to take care of each other. Now, it doesn't say they took care of every single person in the city. Uh, that would have been beyond their means. In Galatians 6.10, it tells us this. So then as we have opportunity, and that idea is as we have ability, as God gives us some money and some time, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the first priority is that we care for other believers, but the second is as we have opportunity and we're uh, able to do this, to bless other people as well. But again, true fellowship is not a, a potluck. It's not a social event. Uh, for some of you who are here and you're going to go to grow groups afterwards, okay, that isn't fellowship. What we're called to is the fellowship. We're called to commit not, not to a program after church, but to a group of people. So for those of you who are in your small group, you're not committing to the, you know, to the program. You're committing to the people who are in the group. That our commitment here isn't, isn't to the meeting that we're in, to the other people who are in this room. That's what fellowship is. And it's been said that, that you can always tell what koinonia is because koinonia always requires a sacrifice. It's an interesting concept, but it always requires a sacrifice. True fellowship always gives something. It gives, uh, it writes a check or it gives a ride or provides a meal or, or, you know, gives a room or it makes some room in your schedule or maybe some room in your relational world. It sacrifices in practical ways. It's, it's tangible. In Hebrews 10, 24, it says this, let us consider let us think about how to, how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And it says, not neglecting to meet together. Why do we not neglect to meet together? Is it because we need to check off the box that we went to every program? No. It's because it's not about the program. It's about the people. It's about your brothers and sisters in this room. And fellowship always costs something. It might cost us some time. It might cost us some money. It might cost us some privacy. Right? I mean, if you're going to have fellowship, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. It might mean that you need to open up your home and, and your table and have people come in and mess up your house and you eat your food. And, and uh, it, it might you know, require a sacrifice of, of comfort or, or even of safety. But one of the challenges is that when a church gets to be our size and we have multiple services, ironically, it usually takes more work to connect with people than it does when you're, you're smaller. Because it's easy to kind of slip in after things have been going. It's easy to kind of slip out. Right? So I, I, I'm up here. I know who you are. I know the people who show up late. I know, you know, some of you like to come three or four songs in. I know the people who leave during the closing prayer just to kind of get out. I peek. You know, I know who you are. Um, and, you know, I know the people who like to avoid conversations and, you know, uh, well, I'll just come every other week or every three weeks because, see, the thing is, that's not, 
that is not devotion to the fellowship. That's just checking off a box. That's just maybe, you know, well, I'll take part in a program. But when you're devoted to the fellowship, it means, for instance, that whether or not you, you go to church or whether or not you go to grow group isn't really just about you anymore. It's about the other people there. And it's about what they'll miss if you're not there. That's what it means. It means that to be devoted to a fellowship is my decisions aren't just about me anymore. They're about, they're about us. So for instance, because we want to push back on this, it's why, it's why, for instance, we have greeters at our church. It's why we have people at the doors who shake hands when you come in. It's not, they're not there for those of you who like to shake hands. They're, for, they're there for you who don't, right? Their goal is to like grab you and stop you and shake your hands. I know some of you know when they're done and come in and then you show up, but we're trying anyways. It's why we have coffee. Most of you already come here caffeinated. It's not why we have coffee. We have it so maybe you'll gather around there and strike up a conversation with someone that you don't usually talk to. It's why we have grow groups to, to try to grow those, those relationships. It's why we have chairs around the lobby. Maybe you'll stop and have a conversation. But, but think about it for a minute. Imagine if you had a church full of people who decided that their commitment isn't to a meeting. Their commitment isn't to a, a program. Their commitment isn't to, uh, you know, being part of grow group, but it's to the people in the group. It's to the people in the room. Imagine how that would maybe slow us down and cause us to have conversations that we wouldn't normally have. You know, well, I got to get the lost dose before everyone else does. But, you know, we slowed it down and let's talk and, and let's do life together. See, I know that some of you in here, you don't need more friends. But there are some people in this room who really need to know you and need to be blessed by that. Well, that was this church. They were, they were committed to the fellowship. The third thing is this. They were committed to the breaking of bread. So let's explain this in verse 42 again. And they continually devoted themselves to, notice the breaking of bread. So there's a little debate about this. There's two common theories about what the breaking of bread is here. Some think that it's a shared meal. So for instance, we know if we keep reading that, that people were going to each other's houses every day and they were having meals together. And so some think that's what this was. It was a shared meal. In verse 46, like just think about this for a minute. Try to picture yourself living this life. And day by day, attending the temple together. So every day they were going to temple and they were breaking bread in their homes. So it was like a rotating, I don't know what you'd call it, potluck that just never ends, you know? There's no end to it. And, you know, like you'd have people at your house one night and then you'd go to someone else's house the next night and the next one. And it was just like this rotating every night. You know, honey, is his coming over tonight? And it was always somebody. And they would have these meals together. And we know, for instance, that part of the reason they did it was because they had all these visitors that were there and they needed food. And so if you were hungry, you got a meal. But if you owned a home, it was a chance to open it up and practice hospitality. It was a chance to bless and serve people. And I, I don't know if you notice this, but eating meals together is just this great context for relational building. I mean, I've noticed I can sit down with somebody and talk, but it, you put some food in front of them and everything kind of slows down and we talk a little bit more. And so I, I know in my grow group, 
every we eat at every grow group meeting i know it sounds like gluttony but we eat every single time and we are we meet in homes where there's a table big enough for everyone and i just love the con so everyone comes sits down we start to eat how was your day how's school going how's the job been praying for you and it just right has this way of just stimulating conversations and doing life together just it's food i know some of you have grow groups tonight afterwards and what are you going to do at the beginning you're going to eat together, right? Because again, it's just a great context for getting to know one another. So it's having meals. But some people think that breaking of bread here was actually a reference to communion or the, the Lord's Supper, where people get together and they have a, some bread and, and, and some wine, right, or juice. And, and it's a chance for believers to meet on common ground. We will remember that every one of us are sinners saved by grace, saved by the same Savior, who went to the same cross, all right? We celebrate the, the same empty tomb, the, the same Lord, and, and we've been saved into the same family. Now, likely what was happening uh, is that breaking of bread was that people would get together and have a meal, and then when they were done, they would take some of the extra bread and some of the extra wine, and they would kind of, at the end, they would celebrate communion together which is just a really cool thought, right? Like, what a great way to end a meal. And this is what they would do. But they did this daily, right? They, so they were really devoted to this kind of thing, to the breaking of bread. And the fourth thing is this. They were devoted to prayer. In fact, they were devoted to the prayers. In verse 42, again, and they continually devoted themselves to the prayers. So, Prayer often makes sense to us. I mean, we think when we pray together, it demonstrates important things. It demonstrates our dependence on God, you know, that we're seeking Him, His wisdom, His involvement. But uh, prayer is also worship. In fact, the word prayer in the Greek and Hebrew means uh, worship. It has that aspect to it. It's, it's relational, you know, talking with God. But let me ask you this. When you think of prayer, what do you think of in your own life? What, what, what comes to mind? How, how do you typically pray? Maybe you pray when you get up in the morning. I do that. I, I, I learned a long time ago, before I open my mouth or talk to anyone, I need to talk to God and make sure, you know, I'm in a good place. And, and uh, maybe when you, when you pray, you think of praying at meals. Uh, maybe that's where you do it. Maybe it's when you're driving to work. Maybe it's at bedtime before you go to sleep, you pray, or maybe you pray with your kids or with your spouse. But here, it's not just talking about prayer. It's talking about the prayers. Because they had these set prayer meetings in those days. Um, actually, two, two times that they did this. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, in fact, the very next story, we read this. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So they had two times that they would pray. Uh, at, um, uh, they would pray in the morning at 9, and they'd pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they would gather together, sometimes at the temple, sometimes at the synagogue, and these were corporate times of prayer. But their prayers probably looked a little different than what we're used to, right? Because we think of a prayer meeting, we get together, people share a couple requests, and then we bow our heads and we pray. But prayer was a much, much bigger, broader thing uh, to them. So for instance, they would get together, and maybe they would read some Bible passages, often Psalms, because those were prayers, and they would just read them out loud, and that was part of their prayer. And then maybe they would sing a song of worship, and that was, that was prayer, just, you know, melodically as they, as they prayed. So I don't know when you sang tonight if you thought, like, that that could be prayer, but it could be. 
It could be if that's where your heart was. And, and then they would have a time of people leading out and praying and they would have prayer leaders. But all of this was, this, all of this was considered prayer. The reading of scripture and the singing and what we think of as prayer. All of that was prayer together. Which is kind of interesting because we have a very small, narrow um, way of thinking about prayer today. One, one uh, writer said this, part of the reason that Christians today find prayer so hard is that we won't accept any help. And I thought that was kind of, interesting to me. I, if prayer is just me coming up with interesting things to say with, uh, to God and, and just, you know, figuring out how to have a conversation with him, prayer can be kind of hard, can't it? It can be easy to run out of things to say. If prayer is just, you know, rolling out of bed in the morning and diving right into a meaningful conversation and thoughts, and I don't know about you, but that's just not me. I'm not really a, a, a morning person. And here's what we find in the early church. The way that they prayed was maybe if it was the morning and they weren't a morning person, they would open up the Bible and, and read a psalm. Maybe they'd read one of the prayers uh, of David and, and read it to God. That David wrote some pretty good stuff. They would read some scripture. Or maybe they would recite the Lord's Prayer. You know, sometimes the Lord's Prayer is better than anything we would pray on our own, Right? Or, or, or as the church developed, they, they developed these things called prayer books. And we don't really have those, but, but books of prayer. And it would have uh, prayers, you know, how to, how to pray when you're hurting, how to pray when you're happy, and how to pray when, when you know, you don't get the remote control, how to, how to pray, uh, and have all these prayers. And, and these were prayers written by godly people. I, I know today, you know, we're like, I'm not reading no prayers written by somebody else. I got good stuff to say. But, you know, some of those prayers were, were pretty good. Why, why wouldn't we? Or maybe get together with someone else and say, you know, let's, let's pray together. I could use a little help and let's, let's pray for one another. And so prayer was a much, much broader thing for them. They had formal prayers at the temple. They had informal prayers in, in homes. They, they attended uh, prayer meetings. Uh, they, would, uh, they would get together. In fact, we'll see in the book of Acts uh, quite a few stories that involved believers getting together and, and praying, and then God working in some, some crazy way. But I want to encourage you as you think about prayer and your prayer life, would you say your prayer life is kind of, kind of big and, and alive right now, or has it gotten kind of small? Is your prayer life just you coming up with something interesting to say to God, or you know, here's the same five things I ask for every day? Maybe you should consider getting in a prayer group, or, or maybe go to your grow group and say, hey, what if, what if we spend a little time sharing prayer requests and praying for one another? Or maybe you should consider, you know, reading a, a passage out of the Psalms when you pray in the morning or, or, or getting a, a prayer partner. So here are the four things that they were, they were devoted to. Right? They were devoted to the Word of God. And they were devoted to the fellowship. And they were devoted to, to having meals together in communion. And they were devoted to, to praying together. These were the things they could do, just as we can today. Now, there were three things in the passage that they couldn't do. And we'll see examples of this in the weeks to come. But in verse 43 and verse 47, it tells us that there were some things that God did that they, they couldn't do. It says this, And awe came upon every soul. That was, that was God's work. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Again, that was God's work. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That was God. And the Lord added to their number. Who added to it? The Lord. Day by day, those who were being saved. So we notice three things that came as a result of their devotion. First, there was, there was awe. 
amongst everyone. The, the Greek word there is phobos, or we get phobia from it, if you will. It's, it relates to fear as a sense of divine presence. They could, they could sense the presence of God. They could see the work of God, and it created a, 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 a respectful fear in them as they saw miracles and God answering prayer and God saving people. And we'll see an example of this in the very next chapter. The second thing was they had favor. So, so people would see them living out the gospel. People would see, uh, you know, they would see these Christians loving one another and sacrificing for one another. And people admired it. Now, of course, it isn't always going to be that way. And, and in the near future in Acts, there's going to be fierce opposition. And there's going to be persecution. But that was also part of God's will, as we'll see. And the third thing that came was faith. This is what God did. People were coming to faith and, and it was happening daily and this was the work of God. And so we have the church and these people who are devoted. But I want to I ask an obvious question and that is, what if you don't have devotion? Like what if you don't have that, that um, gratitude that leads to discipline in your life? What could you do? And I want to suggest several things that you can do. If you're, if you're here this evening and maybe you're thinking, I, I used to have more devotion. I, I used to be on fire for the Lord. And now it doesn't feel quite the same. See, the good news is there's, some, there's something you can do about that. Let me just give you a couple of suggestions in your notes on the backside. The first is this. One way to build devotion is through gratitude. So I want to start with the easy one, with the fun one, and it's not Thanksgiving, and we're still talking about Thanksgiving, so that's cool. But here's an idea. Maybe you need to just take a month and uh, keep a, a journal. I mean, that's just a really practical way to get started. So I found that one of the greatest things to fuel devotion is, is gratitude. But the thing is, sometimes as Christians, we are just swimming in the blessings of God. And we get so used to all the things that God does for us that we don't notice them anymore. And maybe you've forgotten how it is that God saved you. And maybe it's been a while since you thought about what God saved you from. And maybe you haven't really thought recently about how God has blessed you and how God has changed and, and you and how God has answered prayer and worked in your life. And this is why journaling is so important to me. Journaling has this way of helping us capture things we missed. So if you're like me, a lot of times I'll go through my day and uh, conversations and meetings and writing and assignments and all this stuff. And sometimes as I go through my day, God is blessing me. So let me just say this. God is blessing me all through my day and God is blessing you all through your day. God blessed you all day today. But that doesn't mean that you noticed it, right? Sometimes we can get so busy can't we just going from thing to thing that we miss the blessings of God so here's why I love journaling oftentimes at the end of the day I'll sit down and just I'll think back through my day and I'll think about a conversation I had and suddenly I'll realize that God did something there and I didn't see it at the time but then I'm just so encouraged by it I'm so blessed by it. Or maybe God answered prayer and I didn't even notice it. When it happened, I was just so busy going through life. And oh, look how God did that. And a lot of times, at the end of the day, when I review my day, what I realize is God blessed me all day long. It's just that I didn't really see it. Right? Who wants to be blessed and not enjoy it? Right? Nobody I know. We all want to enjoy it. And so journaling is a great way to do that. So one of the ways that you can do this if you want to fuel devotion Take a month and journal at the end of the day. You can do it in five or ten minutes. You've got time. 
And that's one of the things I've found that can really fuel devotion. Here's the second thing. Sometimes you just build devotion through sheer discipline. So I saved this for a second because gratitude and journaling sounds way easier than discipline, all right? But let me just share a story with you about how this worked in my life. So I got saved as a, as, uh, a freshman in high school, had never heard the gospel explained, had never been to church, had never read the Bible. And through just a work of God, I, I heard the gospel. God brought me to faith. Um, I became a believer. And for me, it was just like an overnight thing. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so it was all just absolutely brand new for me. And one of the first things I did was I went down and I got a Bible. So for some of you, this will sound weird, but this was, there was a time when they, you didn't have a Bible on a phone or on a tablet. They had these things called printing presses, and they printed up words on paper, and they would bind it together. And I, you know, my Bible had notes and stuff, and it was like really thick. And then a guy at school made me a, a leather cover for it because it wasn't big enough yet. So, and I've got it in my office. It's just humongous. And um, I would, so I began to carry that thing with me. I didn't carry it at school because um, I heard a sermon on it or I was told to do it. I just couldn't help it. So I would take it because I'd want to read it at lunchtime. So I'd carry it with me. And then people who knew me were like, what's the deal with that Bible? I, you didn't have a Bible last month. Why are you carrying a Bible? And then I would just, sure, I, I didn't, I had like zero theology and, and doctrine, but I did know the gospel and I could share like, well, here's the deal. I didn't know Jesus last month and now I do. And you know, last month I hadn't read anything and now I have and I could share it with you. And, and I'd be like, last month I had no hope and now I do. Last month I was dead in my sins and now I'm alive in Christ. And, and last month I had no future and now I have a future. In fact, I had no idea the future that I had. It was far beyond anything that I could imagine. And I just found just living for Christ and the devotion was just, it, because I was so full of gratitude. And then uh, I went away to college and I got educated and I got sophisticated and I got ordained and I got married and I had uh, bills to pay and responsibilities and lots of options for my time. And I found myself in this place after Christy and I were married for a few years um, I, was, uh, I was involved in my church, and I was reading my Bible. In fact, I was leading the youth group there at the church, and, uh, but I had a job with a food brokerage, and so my job required, it was Monday through Friday, and I would, I would travel around the Portland and Clark County area, and that's, my job was just traveling all day long, going to stores and, and um, putting product on shelves, that kind of stuff. And I realized one day, I, just, I woke up one day, and I, I thought to myself, man, what happened to my, to my fire? You know, what happened to my passion? I, I used to remember waking up in the morning just being on fire for God. And I just would want to read my Bible. And I mean, I was still reading my Bible, but I just the passion wasn't there. And so I decided to do something about it. And so the first thing I did was I started to journal. And that was a discipline for me. I, in fact, I can tell you, so my wife, who um, she can just she can just get in bed and just drop. She can just go to sleep immediately. And I, I, I take a while. So I would write in my journal at night. But we lived in this little apartment and there was no other way to do it. So I would go into the closet and turn the light on and I would write in my journal. Like I can still remember that. And I, so I started writing in this journal. 
writing about what God had done and blessings and prayers. And it started to kind of get me passionate again. And I, it was through that journaling that I decided, you know what? I'm going to start not just reading my Bible in the morning, but I'm going to take it with me to work. And I would, you know, I'd always eat lunch out somewhere. And so I would, I'll take my Bible in to wherever I'm eating and I'll read my Bible during lunch. And I started doing that. And after doing that for a little while, I thought, you know what? I don't think it's enough to read my Bible. I'm going to start sharing Jesus with somebody at lunch every day at Wendy's, at Burger King, at Taco Bell, you know, where all the really big rollers go. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to do that. And so I, and I started to do that. And, I, and it just kept fueling. It became more and more passionate for me. I became, as I did this, more aware of God. I saw God answering prayers. I was having amazing discussions at lunch with people I'd never met before and I'd never met again since then. And it gave me stories. It fueled my faith. It ignited my devotion. Eventually, I was in Clark County one day at a Wendy's and I shared Christ with this guy who turns out he was a Christian. In fact, he was a pastor. And within four months, I was the youth pastor at his church. And it was there that I met a guy named Dwayne who was really responsible for me ultimately coming here. Now, I had no idea at all when I made that decision to start journaling that it would lead to this. My point is just this, that if you will give this some discipline, God can use, he will show up in that discipline and he will ignite your faith. Here's a, here's a third thing and that is we can build devotion together. Right? We don't have to do it alone. That's why we have a, a spiritual family. So last summer we did a one another series if you were here, you might remember that. We talked about things like love one another, uh, commit to one another, accept to one another, build up one another, look out for one another, pray for one another, speak truth to one another, forgive one another, teach one another. We talked about confess to one another, encourage one another, practice hospitality with, with one another. Why does the Bible tell us to do all this? Because this is how we were wired. This is how we were made. We were not made to thrive alone. It doesn't happen as a Christian. We thrive together. We need one another. And one of the best things we can do to ratchet up our devotion is to spend time with one another, is to be with other believers and do these things, to talk about the Lord, to pray together, to read together, to do life together. So I want to just close with this and, and we'll be done. Four suggestions for you. So I, in the first, at the nine o'clock service, I kind of, talked about this for a while and then at the end of the service I realized people were like you didn't need to do that because I was convicted and I was ready to go and so I'm just going to lay these out for you. I'm going to ask you which one of these has the Lord put on your heart tonight? Which one of these things, right? We don't want to sit, soak, and sour. We want to go from here and put the word of God into action. So I'm going to ask you this question. Which one of these do you need to put into practice this week in your life? So maybe it's, maybe it's Bible teaching. Maybe you haven't been reading your Bible. Maybe you need to make a commitment. Maybe it's a 30-day commitment. You're going to go from here and read your Bible every day for 30 days. And then, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe the commitment you need to do is to, to read the Bible in a year. You can start now and go for the next year, and you can do that. Maybe it's to be more consistent in getting Bible teaching. Maybe it's being in here. Uh, maybe it's being in a, you know, a women's Bible study or a youth Bible study. Where do you need to make that commitment to the Word of God? Here's the second thing. Maybe God's calling you to be more consistent in the fellowship. Maybe reality is you're, you're committed to fellowship, but you've never really committed to the fellowship. Right, here's one of the ways it could look. Uh, going to 
a grow group is different from being devoted to a grow group. Maybe you just go to a grow group. Or maybe you just go to a worship service. Or maybe you just go to Tuesday night or Wednesday night or wherever it is you, you go. But have you, have you ever made a commitment to the people in that room? To the people in that, in that program? Again, some of you are going to go meet in small groups tonight. Have you made a commitment to those people to pray for them? And to do life with them, to support them even outside of that group? Maybe that's the commitment that you need to make. Here's a third one. Maybe you need to be devoted to, to breaking bread with other believers. This is a hard one, right? Maybe your home is your castle. And what I mean is your home is your fortress and there's a moat and the drawbridge is up because when you come home at night, man, you just want to, you want to be alone and, and you want to be comfortable. And maybe tonight God's been like, mm, it's time to open the door and invite some people in. It's time to have some people around the table. It's time to break bread together. Here's the last one. Maybe you just need to be devoted to praying together. And maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with your grow group. Maybe you need to go to your grow group and say, could we just take a few minutes and, and pray for one another? Maybe it's a, just another individual. Maybe it's somebody that you could be a prayer partner with. Maybe it's beginning to keep a, a, a list of prayer requests and setting aside some time every day so you can be devoted to prayer, and to praying with other people. Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. My question is, which one is it? Which one of these do you need to put into practice this week? I don't know what it is for you, but I bet you do. So let me pray for us, and we'll let you go.